Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday, 16th of September, Ralph Cunnington taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Ralph took us through the Book of Psalms. Ralph is the senior pastor at City Church in Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. Um, it's great uh, to be here with you. Uh, and this training course is really, really exciting, and it's a real pleasure for me to be able to be involved in it in this uh, small way. Uh, and can I also thank um, Christchurch Manchester? Um, we moved to the city five years ago, and we, we came with a vision to be planting churches. We saw the need uh, in the great city of Manchester. Uh, and when we were looking at examples of people who had a real passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and a real passion for reaching the city through church planting, Christ Christchurch Manchester was the one that stood out. You guys are prolific in church planting. You are not afraid to take risks. So thank you uh, for setting us such a wonderful example in that. We really are grateful to you. Um, I'm afraid I'm not going to do a huge amount of work. I'm going to do some teaching, but I want you guys to do lots of work as well today. Uh, And we're going to start off in that vein. So um, you're all nicely on tables. I wonder whether on tables you can discuss between yourselves what is unusual uh, about the book of Psalms compared to other books in the Bible. So maybe just come up with a list and we'll go share them. Or things that are unusual about the book of Psalms. Three or four minutes to do that. So what do you guys think is unusual about the book of Psalms? What marks it out as different to other books in the Bible? Where do we start? Where do we start? Okay, yeah. It's Expressive shows raw emotion from the heart. Say that again. Of humanity. of humanity. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? So, what's the Psalms made up of? Poems. Sorry. Sorry. Poems. Poems. Yeah. And 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 who are they from? And who are they to? It's worship uh, to God. Yeah. And songs praise to God. Yeah. So it's primarily coming from believers. To, to God, and sometimes to other believers, but primarily to God. Whereas you look at something like um, Leviticus, it's, it's from God to humanity, isn't it? Uh, but what we have here is this very different direction. It's, it's all coming from humanity to God and secondarily to one another. Anything else that's different about the book of Psalms? Lots of different authors, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Over a huge span of time, that's right, yeah. And um, so uh, it's probably not really true of, of any book in the Bible, but, but generally it's true that the books of the Bible work through chronologically, isn't it? So we know in the Gospel account, sometimes it's arranged thematically, things are put in slightly different order. They, they weren't kind of like us in terms of everything has to be chronological. But the book of Psalms, it's not, is it? Anything else? Anything else that's unusual? It's got the largest passage in the Bible. Yes, which is? And it's 119, and it's the shortest. Yes. Yes. Very, very close together, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. 
This is unusual in lots and lots of different ways. Um, just at the beginning of the session, we're going to have a quick overview of the Book of Psalms. I'm just going to explain a bit about the structure, how it's made up. Uh, and then we're going to dig down deeper into the purpose of the Book of Psalms. Why did God give us the Book of Psalms? Uh, and how should it be used uh, by his people today? Uh, so what is it? What is the Book of Psalms? Uh, the Book of Psalms is composed of poems, songs, and prayers. In fact, it is more of a prayer book than it is a hymn book. We tend to think about it as being made up of songs and hymns, but primarily these songs and hymns, they are prayers that have then been put to music. So it's a prayer book, a prayer book for God's people, for Israel, and then for the church. Uh, When was it written? Well, I said it wasn't... uh, It's not compiled chronologically, rather it's an edited book. Um, The Psalms were written over a period of at least 500 years, if not many, many more. Uh, And they are attributed to many different authors. So who authored more Psalms than anyone else? David, King David. 72 Psalms out of 150. Who's number two, any guesses? Well, some of them... Solomon's only down on three, actually. But there's someone at the whacking number 12 in place number two. Psalm 73. One of my favourite psalms. Psalm of Asaph. So Asaph is in number two uh, with 12 psalms. The sons of Korah uh, with 11. Uh, Solomon and Moses with three. Uh, uh, Heman, or He-Man, uh, and... Uh, Ethan were two, uh, and then 49 of them are uh, anonymous, so no superscription uh, ascribing the author. So lots of different authors over a huge amount of time. Uh, And as I said, it's it's an edited book. Uh, So it's it's been edited into five separate books of the Psalms. Now, why do you think they might have chosen five books in the Psalms? Where else do we see the number five? Think back to what you saw earlier in the year. Way earlier. The Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, yeah, which is the five books of the, the law. Yeah, yeah. So it seems what, what the editor of the Psalms was doing was, was having five p- books of prayer that mirror the five books of the law. That seems to be the purpose of the structure uh, and, and the way we can see that there are five um, books of the Psalms is that, that at the end of every one of the five books, it, it ends in the same way. There's, there's a same refrain at the end of each book of the Psalms. And the refrain is this, praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So at the end of each book of the Psalms, you get that refrain, praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Praise be to the Lord. Hallelujah. Forever. Amen and amen. Um, The book of Psalms has an introduction. It then has the five books and it has a conclusion. The introduction is actually um, Psalms 1 and 2 together. Uh, Just open your Bibles if you've got them in front of you. And have a look at Psalms 1 and 2. How do we know that Psalms 1 and 2 
are an introduction. Well, they're at the start. That's a big clue in itself, isn't it? Uh, But there are a number of things that mark out Psalms 1 and 2 and make them different to the rest of book 1. Point number one, they carry no superscription. So you know under the psalm, uh, you have in italics in Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. That's writing in italics. That's part of the original. That's not kind of an NIV or an ESV imposition on it. That's part of the book of Psalms. It's it's the superscription. And throughout the whole of book one of of the psalms, every psalm except for four of them uh, have a superscription. But Psalm 1 and 2 don't. And so that suggests that there's something different about these psalms, that they are in some way an introduction. Uh, Reason number two why we know that these are introductory psalms, um, both end in the same way, uh, with a description of the way that leads to destruction. So look at verse 6 of Psalm 1. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. And then verse 12 of of Psalm 2, it ends with a warning that if you do not kiss the son, if if you do not pledge your allegiance and bow before God's chosen son, your way will lead you to destruction. It's this warning that opens up the book of Psalms and both the introductory Psalms. And, And then the third thing that tells us that these go together is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are bracketed. It's like, it's like they're, they're two books, and on either side are these bookends. So verse 1 of Psalm 1, the bookend of blessing. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Bookend at the end of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Lord. So it looks like Psalm 1 and 2, they they act as an introduction. And because they're an introduction, they are really, really important. And what they do is they introduce the two key themes of the whole book of Psalms. Not just book one, but the whole five books. Two key themes introduced by Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Theme 1, God's law. Theme two, God's chosen king, his Messiah. Uh, So look at Psalm 1 with me. Uh, Psalm 1 starts saying, Blessed, blessed is the one, verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the blessed person. The, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. The, the one, verse 2, who meditates on his law day and night. That's how the Psalms are introduced. But then, then you work on through the book of the Psalms, okay? And what you see again and again and again is that the one who delights in the law, the, the one who meditates on it day and night, in their experience, they often don't find blessing. So, for example, Psalm 73, I I mentioned that earlier. It's an amazing psalm written by Asaph about doubt. And and he looks around him. He he sees what's going on in the world. He sees how the wicked prosper and how the righteous suffer. And he says, "My, my feet almost slipped. This promise of blessing for 
for those who delight in the Lord, doesn't correspond to experience. Yet, at the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 145 and verse 20, the psalmist reaffirms, the Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. In other words, the book of Psalms was to tell us that our experience often does not correspond to reality. Our experience does not correspond to reality, to the way things really are. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The the Lord declares that the king will be his son, and that this king, he he will rule not just over Israel, but rule over all nations. And yet, by the end of the book of Psalms, there is no king on David's throne. The book of Psalms is written over the period of the exile, when Judah is taken out to Babylon, there is no king. Psalm 89, verse 39. The psalmist says, You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. Again, Psalm 2 opens with this promise of a king who will rule over all, who will be the Lord's anointed, whose throne will never cease. And yet, by the time we get to the end of the book of Psalms, there is no king. The covenant's been renounced. The throne has been defiled. So what we have in the introduction to the Psalms is is this tension being set up, a tension that's ultimately not resolved in the book of Psalms. Between what is true for believers and what is experienced by believers. The, The point of the book of Psalms is to leave us longing. To leave us with this this heartfelt yearning for what is promised and yet is not realised in our experience. You know, Psalms 1 and 2 actually, uh, the relationship between them helps us as we look towards that fulfilment. You see, the, the question that Psalm 1 begs. If we're really honest with ourselves, the question that Psalm 1 begs is who on earth is this righteous person that Psalm 1 describes? I I don't know how regular and earnest you are in your Bible reading, but does Psalm 1 to really describe you? Do you you really delight in the law of the Lord with constancy? Do you really meditate upon it? Which is not just reading it, but, but proclaiming it, singing it day and night, constantly. Is that you? In all honesty, if you're anything like me, you're much more like verse 4. Stumbling, struggling, getting things wrong, keeping the wrong company, having the wrong God's your life. You know, Psalm 2 screams out, who on earth is this king? Who who is this king who is going to be king of all nations, who will rule over all? Who is this king who will be the son of God? It wasn't David. In my quiet times this morning, I I was reading, it came to the chapter on David and Bathsheba. 
This greatest, greatest of the kings, the the one that they all look back to to be like David, the the one who Josiah was said to be like as a kind of epitome of a great king. And yet there he is, just giving into his lust in a moment when he's being lazy. He should have been at war. And then trying to cover up his guilt by sending the husband to be murdered on the battlefield. Who, who is this righteous king who will rule? Who is this righteous king who is truly a son of God? So do you see how these these two psalms, they they introduce us to the themes we see throughout the book of Psalms. The theme of delight in the law and God's anointed king. But they introduce us to the frustration. to, To the kind of twisting of ourselves. Of why? Why does my experience not correspond the way things truly, truly are. Where is this one who will delight in God's law and all that he reveals of himself? Where is this one who will be the great king who rules over all, who all will pledge allegiance to? As Christopher Ashe puts it, that the Psalms of David show us the sufferings of the rejected king, the intimacy of the anointed king with God his father, the innocence of the king praying for vindication, And his prayer for God to destroy his enemies. And those things are not realised. They're not realised in the book of Psalms. So that's the introduction. Moving on to the end. Uh, The end you may know well. uh, Psalms 146 through to 150. And each psalm, uh, what's it begin with? You can flick forwards and you can tell me. What does each of Psalms 146 to 150 begin with? Praise the Lord, yes. Uh, what's that word in Hebrew? You can guess it, okay? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, and uh, that is how the book of Psalms ends with hallelujahs, the, the great hallelujah chorus to round off all of these prayers. Uh, let me uh, run through quickly with you the, the structure of the Psalter. Um, So book one, book one of the Psalter, just turn over on your handouts. Uh, This is uh, Psalms 3 to 41. And all of these Psalms, not all of them, but most of them relate to King David. Um, Psalms 15 and 24, uh, they act as bookends in this uh, book, first book of the Psalms. Uh, And they both ask the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand... In his holy place. It's there in verse 1 of Psalm 15, and then again in uh, verse 3 of Psalm 24. And the answer to that question of who can go into the Lord's presence, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, is the one who is blameless and faithful. Within those two bookends of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, we have Psalm 16 to 18. And and these describe King David as a model of faithfulness. And then verses 20 to 23 describe the David of the past, who, who was an image or... Have you come across typology yet? So, so there are, are pictures, there are models in the Old Testament that look forward to their fulfilment in the New Testament. And Psalms 20 to 23 present King David 
as this model, this, this type of the anti-type Messiah to come. And what famous psalm is in these, these psalms, Psalms 20 to 23? The psalm that is most quoted, I think, in the New Testament. Well, Lord's my shepherd, which is one of our favourites, yep. But just before it, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Yeah, why have you forsaken me? A psalm that vividly portrays the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. A smack bang here in the middle of these psalms about David. David as a model, as a type of the Messiah to come, the true anointed king, the the fulfilment of Psalm 2. And sandwiched in the middle of this, this, this block within book one is, of course, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, that, that wonderful celebration of God's revelation. His revelation of himself in nature, general revelation, and then delighting in his revelation in his word, the Torah, the law. Special revelation. Again, throughout this book, there is this relationship between God's law and God's king, the king who came to fulfil the law. Um, book two, uh, book two of the Psalms runs from Psalm forty-two uh, through to seventy-two, and it opens with a hunger and a thirsting for a future return to the temple in Zion. Uh, that again, the temple in Zion. Zion is, is the city of David. It's, it's the place where God's chosen king resides. And Psalm 42 opens with this, this heartfelt desire that as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The psalm is longing to, to be back in Zion, back where the Messiah belongs. It closes out with Psalm 72. Psalm 72 that that holds out the hope of a future messianic king who will, verse 10, who will rule over the nations. The one who the kings of Sheba and Saba will present with gifts. Do you see it's it's linking back to Psalm 2? Yeah? Not just Psalm 2. Where is this promise? That in God's chosen one, all nations will be blessed? Say that again? It's certainly in Isaiah, but, but where's, it, where's it start? Where's, where's God make this promise that his purposes are not just for one family, not just for one nation, but for all nations? Abraham, the promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. What we see here in Psalm 72 It's the promise of a king who will come who will fulfill this promise to Abraham. What we see in Psalm 2 is a king who will rule and will rule in a loving way over all nations. The the Psalms, they are prayers of fulfilment of all of God's precious promises in the past. Uh, Book 3. Book 3 is a shorter book. It runs from Psalm 73 to 89. And it opens with Asaph's great psalm about his doubt. And it closes in Psalm 89 on God's promises. And the psalmist reflecting on those promises in light of the exile. You've got to understand what a terrible thing the exile was. 
Genesis 12, God's, God's promises. Genesis 15, they were all built around this nation being in God's promised land. Under God's great rule. And now in exile, they were in a foreign land, a scattered people under the rule of a tyrannical king who wanted nothing to do with the Lord. And so Psalm 89 is the psalmist's reflections of living in exile, living where experience doesn't match the promise. And the psalmist pleads in verse 49 of Psalm 89, he pleads, Lord, do not forget your promise. Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Do you see the frustration? That longing, that longing for that king in David's line, the messianic king. Uh, Then book four runs from Psalm 90 to 106, again, a shorter book. And again, this book is written in response to the crisis of the exile. It it begins in Psalm 90 uh, with a prayer of Moses, which is basically a reflection on, uh, on Genesis 1 to 3, probably in light uh, of the golden calf incident after he came down from Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses seems to be praying a prayer that, that sees what happened with the golden calf just being a continuation of the results of the fall. And of course this is now used in the context of a book about the exile to say, well, the same sin continues. We're stubborn, we are hard-hearted, we fall for idols again and again and again and again. At the centre of book three is Psalms uh, 93 through to 100. It's interesting, so in the context of the exile, what does the psalmist do? He fills book three up with, with psalms that announce the universal reign of the Lord over the whole earth. That was so crucial in the context of exile, wasn't it? In these psalms, the whole of creation is summoned to worship God, to celebrate that future day when God will come in justice and rule over the whole earth. That's what faithful Jews in exile needed to hear in Babylon. Of course, we're, we're not so far away from that ourselves, are we? Living in a city where at least 94% of people reject the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the message we need to hear? Poor us, batten down the hatches. Let's just have a holy huddle and hope it all goes okay in the end. No. We need to be singing. We need to be singing Psalms 93 to 100. The Lord reigns. He reigns over all. One day, every knee shall bow before him. And even now, all creation delights in him. Uh, Book 5. Book 5 opens with a series of psalms, Psalm 107 through to 110. Uh, And these affirm that God hears the cries of his people. He hears their cries and he will send the promised messianic king. And and this book really rounds things off. And it has two larger sections. The the Hallelel of Psalm 113 to 118. And then the songs... Of a sense, Psalm 120 to 134. These these are songs, these are prayers 
delighting, praising God for who he is as they, as they prepare to return to the hill of Jerusalem. The point of these psalms is to sustain this, this yearning, this, this earnest desire for that messianic king who has been promised. During the horror of exile, these, these psalms of praise to prepare for the time when they come to meet their king, who's returned to rule. And you know, right in the middle of these psalms, remember that the hallelel, those are those hallelujahs uh, of Psalm 113 to 118. Then you've got the songs of ascents of 120 to 134. What do you have in the middle? 119, the longest psalm, an acrostic psalm. What's an acrostic psalm, anyone know? Yes, yes. So each, each section of it starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it works through the Hebrew alphabet. So 24 sections of it as it goes through the 24 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's all about the Lord Lord. Okay? So the Hallelujah, preparing, praising the Messiah. The Song of Ascent. Preparing to ascend to where the Messiah is, and in the middle, a psalm delighting in the Lord of the Lord. Do you see, it's those two themes come together. Delighting in who God has revealed himself to be, delighting in who he has promised to send, bringing those two things together, and letting that be our song of praise, letting that be the delight of our hearts, letting that be the, our ambition in a world where our experience is totally at odds with that reality. That's what the book of Psalms is. So over to you again. What is the purpose of the book of Psalms? Uh, why did God include it in his inspired word? What is the purpose of the book of Psalms? And why did God include it in his inspired word? Uh, just... One of the things I'm thinking about as I ask this question, these psalms are very personal, aren't they? That they were written down in history, individual people writing about their experience in history. Not our experience in history. We live two and a half thousand years on from that. So why did God choose to have these recorded in his inspired word? Why, in the words of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, did God breathe these words that they're not just the words of man they are the words of god himself why uh, in your tables just think about it and then we'll feedback okay what did we come up with <laughs> what is the purpose of the book of science why did did god decide that this would be included why did he inspire these words of these psalms what do people think they're very accessible, they're very accessible. yeah what do you mean by that Change 
two, three thousand years ago, yep. just the same now. Yep. So these are just as relevant to me personally. Yeah. That universal experience of sin and fallenness and longing, longing that's built into our hearts for something better. Yeah. Anything else? He's faithful to his promises, and we see that again and again in Psalms. The Lord, you know, he will, he will save his people. Yep. Yeah. I think for me, it's when you're reading Psalms, you feel as though God is in it with you. Yeah. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, you feel that, you know, that when you. It's very weak, Psalms can be very weak. Hmm. And you feel, that, you feel that because Christ is there, that you know that God is with each and every one of us in our misery. Yeah. He's not a God that stands out and just watches it. He's sort of there, out yeah. there watching us, but also is with us very, very intimately. Yeah, yeah. And you really feel sometimes when you read in the Psalms, you've got a feeling of anguish. But it's almost like you feel very close to God. Yep. When it's real, when you really are yeah. in a state of misery, you feel that you are being heard. Yeah, that God is close, that God is near, that God understands. Because this is what God has breathed out through human office. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's, in some ways, the only practical guide on prayer and worship and praise in the Bible. If you didn't have Psalms, you would have a couple of songs in the Pentateuch and mm. Jesus' examples of prayer mm. from which to draw our understanding of how we communicate with God. The Psalms is a, hun- a collection of 150 people's prayers to mm. God. And from that we can draw understanding of how we pray, what we pray, in what circumstances we pray. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It, it's our tutor and how to pray, isn't it? You know, we, we get taught to speak by our parents. We get... You know, taught to how to eat and everything like that. No one teaches us to pray, do they? But the book of Psalms has been given to teach us to pray. Um, and that, I'm sure, is why the Lord has included it in. Just flick over your handouts. Uh, Christopher Ash says, The proper purpose of singing the Psalms is that we learn to pray them. Not primarily a song book, but a prayer book, which gives rise to song. Uh, Ben Patterson, by praying the Psalms back to God, we learn to pray in tune with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, The Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says the Psalms, they are designed to be prayed. Nice and straight and to the point. They're for praying. And prayer is basic to the Christian life. I say no one teaches us to pray. Of course, our parents teach us to pray. But where do they teach us to pray from? Well, they need to be taught to pray, don't they? And ultimately, just as our parents teach us how to speak to them when we are tiny little babies, so we need our Heavenly Father to teach us how to speak to him. Communication with God is integral to to the Christian life. We were made for a relationship with him... But how do we grow that relationship? How do we develop that relationship? How do we have a fruitful, healthy relationship with the one we were created for? We need to be taught how to pray. First uh, John chapter 5, verse 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But but how do we know how to do that? How do we know what is according to his will? And how do we know how to ask things according to his will? 
How do we know how to ask things in Jesus' name? By reading his word. By reading his word, that's exactly it. Reading lots of different parts of his word. Um, Don Carson's written an excellent little book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And what it does is it takes um, all the prayers in the letter, letters that Paul wrote and are recorded in the Bible, and then teaches us to pray from those prayers. And we can do exactly the same with the Psalms, can't we? We can look at the Psalms, these, these prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the past, and let them teach us how to pray. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Anyone tell me what it says? Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sorry, it's on your handouts. That's easy, isn't it? Hey, you could have all pretended you knew. You're a very, very honest bunch, aren't you? In Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the Psalms, uh, he said this, As a teacher will compose letters or little speeches for his pupils to write to their parents, so by this book he prepares both the language and the mood in which we should address the Heavenly Father. We're about to go into a coffee break, which Andy has told me that I must not step over on. So... In the spirit of praying the Psalms. You guys, you guys are all confident enough to pray in a huge group, yeah? Okay. Let's turn to Psalm uh, 23 together. And let's just have a time of open prayer, okay? And let's pray Psalm 23. So uh, we saw at the end of the last session that, um, that the Psalms help us learn how to pray. And there are two particular ways in which they help us. Uh, firstly, they help us because they address the full range of human experiences. Uh, so there are prayers of lament that, that express pain and confusion. Psalms of lament that, that express anger at how horrible the world is, at how people just disdain the Lord. But there are also psalms of praise, psalms of joy, psalms of delight, psalms of celebration. That, that draw our attention to the goodness of how God has created the world. Uh, that draw our attention to, to the amazing grace that we have in his salvation. That there are psalms that cause us to wonder at God's redemption. Uh, there are also psalms of thanksgiving that, that help us to, to thank God for, for the blessings that he has lavished on us. And those psalms of thanksgiving, they're not just praise to God, but they're also a witness to other people about God's work in our lives. You know, how do we impact our communities? You know, we tell them the good news of Jesus, but surely we show them in our, in our inherent innate thankfulness. We, we live in a world of entitlement, don't we? We live in a world where everyone feels a victim and feels that they should have so much more. And yet we as Christians, we know we deserve nothing and God has lavished so much on us. And our thankfulness testifies to the truth of the gospel. And the Psalms help us. They help us to pray that in our personal times and they help us to delight in that thankfulness uh, amongst our communities. Uh, the great 16th century reformer, Jean Calvin, um, said this. 
He said, the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Because there is not... I'm trying to work out what that was supposed to be. It's not an emption. There's not an emotion, yes, indeed. There's not an emotion which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So, as we said right at the start, the the Psalms express all the ways that we feel. They relate to us. They empathise with us in any and every situation. But they don't just do that. They're not just like a kind of agony aunt getting alongside us and kind of saying, yeah, 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 that's just normal, that's fine, that's all right. The Psalms are also corrective because the Psalms follow through. They don't just leave us wallowing in lament. They don't just leave us delighting in how wonderful it is that the Lord will reign in the future. Now what they do is they they reorient, they reshape our disordered emotions and affections. So when sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, death came... And sin corrupted the whole of humanity. Have you heard of the phrase total depravity? You've done a session on sin, haven't you? Yeah. What does total depravity mean? So everyone sins, everyone is horrible, no one is worthy of God. Does it mean that we're as sinful as we possibly could be, all of us? No. But what does it mean when it says that we are totally depraved, totally in terms of all of us are depraved, but what does it mean for me to be totally depraved individually? The heart of man. The heart of man. Yep, desperately wicked. Yep. And is it just a problem in my head? Is it just my head? No, what is it? So the heart is the seat of my will is corrupted. I go the wrong way. I'm inherently wicked in the orientation. Uh, the scriptures also talk about the bowels of us, our bowels. Yeah. What, what does the Bible mean when it says that there is a problem with our bowels and our bowels are totally depraved? Some of us might have related to that with a bad curry. Um, <laughs> what's the scripture saying when it says our bowels of love? The seat of our emotions, that's right. And and that is being corrupted as well. Total depravity means that there is not one part of our being that is unaffected by sin. So it's not just that the the noetic, that the mind affects a sin. It's not even just that the heart affects a sin in terms of the the will. But it's also the, the seat of the emotions. Everything in me is disordered. Even the, the purest of, of love for, for my wife or for my children has been affected by sin. 
My emotional response to them, to the Lord, has been affected by sin. It has been disordered. Uh, Like you said at the back, we've been turned in on ourselves. And the Psalms are one of God's instruments that the Holy Spirit uses to to reorder, to, to reshape our emotions, our affections. Because the truth is, what, what we ought to delight in, we so often are indifferent towards. What we ought not to desire, we often lust after. And the Psalms have been given to us to help us to develop healthy, sanctified emotions and affections. They've been given to us to help us to enjoy the things we should enjoy. And you know, they've been given us to help us to hate the things we should hate. I think we're probably all right with the first bit, aren't we? But the second bit kind of seems to grate a bit. Yet there is evil. Satan is real. Powers are arranged against him. And we should hate that. We should hate anything in ourselves that diminishes God's glory. And yet sin has dampened our delight and it's dampened our hatred, our holy hatred of these things. And the Psalms reshape, reorder our emotions. But, but, big but. Uh, flick over, we'll, we'll overlook uh, John Calvin. Generally don't do that, but we'll do that at this point in time. Um, can we really, really pray the Psalms? And when I say pray the Psalms, um, I'm not saying we take our favourite bit of the Psalms uh, and pray that. When we're talking about praying the Psalms, we're not being selective and just praying Psalm 23, Psalm 19, Psalm 1. I'm saying, can we really pray the whole Psalms as a book of 150 Psalms? Because if God has given us the Psalms as his inspired word to help us to learn how to pray, then every one of them must be useful for that purpose. But is that really true? Is every single one of the Psalms really useful for us to teach us to pray? Back over to you. Uh, How many tables have we got? Lots. Um, I would like, we've got... This is a test of my maths. Um, could these two tables, as tables, do Psalm 17? Um, the next two and a half, three, do Psalm 51. Um, then down to Tim's table, do Psalm uh, 88. And then Psalm 139, these three tables. And I want you to ask the question, can we really pray these Psalms? Where are the difficulties with praying them, Okay. Can we really pray that psalm? And where are the difficulties in us praying those psalms? Okay, should we come back together? Has everyone had a chance to look at the psalms? Anyone need more time? No? Okay, let's go with um, Psalm 17. What are the problems with praying Psalm 17? Are there any problems? I don't know about you, but uh, maybe not be able to pray that. <laughs> so, 
and, and also verse 13, we saw was that, well, in the NIV it says, rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down. So, uh, I don't know, just about praying to bring people down. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a claim of extraordinary innocence in the first few verses, which few of us relate to, and we wonder whether David had sinned with Bathsheba before he said that. <laughs> um, and then this claim for vindication of wanting destruction for his enemies. Yeah. Neither of those two things we particularly relate to. So what does it mean to use Psalm 17 as our prayer? Okay. Psalm 51. Now, this is a favourite psalm, isn't it? Of any psalm, this is the one you're probably most likely to have prayed in a church context, because churches down through the centuries have used it as a prayer of confession. This is David's psalm after his adultery with Bathsheba. Group to the back. What do you think? Is there any problem with praying this psalm? Um, well, we think we talked about how he talks kind of generally about, um, I think we find it easy to, to ask for forgiveness for sins kind of generally. Actually, he's, he's talking here. He's repenting of something very specific and difficult. He's actually <coughs> confronting specific like acts and things that we do in our lives that are against the word of God and so I think it can, I think it's probably quite difficult for us to pray that and rather than just pray generally forgive me for generally bad things that I've done yes yeah because he's not praying out specific yeah. sins for confession that's that's difficult because we just take it generally but yeah. this is a model of being very specific yeah Anything else? Anything that's a little bit strange in this psalm that maybe we, as those this side of Christ coming, wouldn't say? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting because verse 17 points us in the direction that it's not about animal sacrifices, but it's that contrite heart. But then he goes back to animal sacrifices because he lives, he seems to, because he goes, he's before Christ. He's looking forward to Christ and those are God's provisions in view of Christ's future coming. Anything else? What about verse 11? Yeah. What did David have in mind there? Who was the king who came before him? Saul. Saul. What happened with Saul? Say that again. Exactly that. He, he was disobedient to the Lord. He, he made sacrifice though he wasn't a priest. And the Lord took his anointing from him and took his spirit from him. And from that moment on... Saul was no longer going to be king. He was king in name only, not in the Lord's ordering. And that was a real concern for David. He'd seen what happened to his predecessor. Now, of course, living this side of Christ's return, living this side of Pentecost, every believer is anointed by the Spirit. We are all priests in that sense. We, we are all heirs of God and are given the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't come and go in the same way, not denying experiences of being filled with the Spirit, but in terms of that finality of taking the Holy Spirit from us, that does not happen. So that part of the prayer, that, that's, that's something that's different and context-specific at this point in redemptive history. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, there are so many things you've just said there. <laughs> um, it's hard to know where to start. So I definitely would agree that it's a prayer we can pray, modifying it in the light of us not being an anointed king in the line of David uh, and us living on this side of Christ's return. Um, I would also agree that, um, that when we sin, um, our experience of delighting in the presence of God is massively diminished. Undoubtedly, that's, you know, we feel distant. But the reality is different, this side of Christ coming and the Spirit being given to us. Uh, and so there's a real role to play. But when we're using the psalm to help us to reflect and that, to bring us back to Christ and the cross and the forgiveness we have in him, we are modifying the psalm. We're not using it in the same way as David did. Because David knew that the Lord can take the Holy Spirit from his anointed king and just leave it um, and the whole point of us praying this in the light of Christ is we know that will not happen because when we are faithless he is still faithful and all we need to do is come to him to receive that gift of grace does that make sense so I think I agree but qualifiably so so do you think part of that we've actually used that when we're looking in Psalms to say Lord I experience that but thank you that now Jesus has come I don't have the same worry that guy does I'm in a far better place because of your grace. Yes, which is where we're heading. Where we're heading. No, 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 I, I love it. That is exactly where we're heading. That is exactly where we're heading. What about Psalm 88? <laughs> that is an understatement. That is an understatement. It is really interesting, though, isn't it? In that he has such a high view of God's sovereignty that he knows that things that he cannot morally ascribe to God because they're three secondary agents still are all under God's perfect purposes and according to his will. But, but I agree, it's, it's a kind of one-sided focus, which is because he's praying it out of the context of extraordinary suffering which I'm sure in this room many of us have been through really awful things, but I think even having been through those awful things, this is just a few levels worse, and we just don't directly relate to it. Uh, And it's a problem because it doesn't mirror our emotional response. Yeah. Anything else from the groups who looked at? Yeah. Uh, I would say it's more like a petition. More like a? Petition. Petition. It's more individual. 
more individual, yes, rather than a corporate, because it's born out of individual experience, which makes it hard for us to pray. I guess just like Psalm 51, born out of a specific sin. Um, few of us have committed adultery and murdered the husband. Um, we've done other terrible things, but yeah. Um, what about Psalm 139? So Psalm 139 is it's a favourite psalm, isn't it? We love praying this one. Yes. I'm not sure. Verse 19. I pray, Lord, would you slay the wicked? Yep. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. I mean, that is sometimes appropriate in some of our churches. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? We don't say that very often. And what... What might be a problem with us saying it? So I said earlier on that, that the point of the psalm is to, to reshape our affections, but, but why might we hesitate? Who's, who's writing the psalm? Even at the end of it, he says, um, so he said, slay the wicked and all that sort of thing. And he goes, but God, you know, test my thoughts. No, whether I'm right. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like it admits at the end that maybe we might go wrong and it's just lashing out. Yeah, and, and realising the sin in his own heart. So realising how appalling it is to hate the Lord, and yet maybe that's what's being harboured in his heart. You see the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. Okay. You know, that, that, that saying in the New Testament, Paul says, you know, I know what I should be saying and thinking, and my spirit wants to do the right thing. And then suddenly your flesh pulls you down. Hmm. You, be, you behave appallingly. Hmm. And then your spirit then makes you realise, do you know what you've just said? Hmm. I feel you see that here. Hmm. Which is very, very human. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he's very much the, the human anointed king. And he's an anointed king. He's the one who represents God's people. So he's kind of giving that corporate message as the anointed king. So it's... We tend to think if I hate the person who hates God, it is person to person in that sense. Does that make sense? Um, whereas he is saying it as the representative of all of God's people. And yet there is that ambiguity at the end because he realises that he is not the perfect representative of God's people who's saying this on behalf of God's people. There's, there's that tension inherent in who he is by the anointing of God and yet who he is as a sinful human being. Uh, and we are neither that anointed person of God, uh, nor are we quite living in that light of ambiguity that David was before Christ's coming. Does that make sense? In the spirit of praying Psalms, okay, let's go to Psalm 51 in our tables uh, and let's just pray that, okay? If you know each other, you can get specific. If you don't, feel free to go general, okay? Uh, we're going to spend five minutes doing that. Okay. So. <coughs> Sorry, I haven't interrupted any deep prayers or confession. No, good, good. Um, so we've seen there is a problem with praying some of the Psalms. And the reason there's a problem with praying some of the Psalms is that we are slightly short-circuiting the process. Because what we need to learn is not just simply how to pray the Psalms, but how to pray the Psalms in Christ. 
We need to learn how to pray the Psalms in Christ. So we've seen in in 2 Timothy 3.16, we've seen that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And of course, Paul is speaking there primarily about the Old Testament scriptures, about the Psalms. They're given to us to teach, rebuke, correct, train in righteousness and to thoroughly equip us. So we need to ask, how do we do that? And the Lord Jesus himself modelled that the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, what did he say on the road to Emmaus? He saw the disciples looking disconsolate, walking along, looking at scriptures, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. If we want to know how the Old Testament scriptures thoroughly equip us, for every good work, then we need to read the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ, recognising that he is the one who fulfils everything we find in them. He is the one that they are universally pointing towards. If we do not get to Christ in our reading of scripture, we have wrongly understood it. We're not reading the whole Bible as Christian scripture. What's more, it's not just what the Bible says about itself, that it must be read through the lens of Christ. To to read and pray the Psalms, not through Christ, is actually to mistake who we are. You see, we are not King David. We're not. We're not even one of King David's servants. Our fundamental identity as a New Testament believer, is found in Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who has united us to Christ. And in that union, we have every spiritual blessing in him. Now, in the present, and to be fully realised and consummated when Christ returns. So Romans 8 verse 1, it tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if we're in Christ Jesus. Full justification in the right with God, his precious children. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have gone, passed away. Behold, the new things have come. John 15, what did Jesus himself say? I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Our fundamental identity is that we are in Christ. Therefore, we must pray the Psalms in Christ. And I've got three tips as we close this section on how to do that. Three tips Uh, drawing from Christopher Ash on how to pray the Psalms in Christ. Tip number one, recognise that David is a type of Jesus. He is a model, he's a precursor, He's he's a trailer, like a film trailer of the anointed king. We've seen that in Psalm 1 and 2, haven't we? The sufferings of King David, they become typical sufferings for God's anointed king which are ultimately seen in the sufferings of Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Bruce Voltke has been really helpful on this. He says, from a literary and historical point of view, we should understand that the human subject of the Psalms, whether it be the blessed man of Psalm 1, 
the one proclaiming himself the Son of God in Psalm 2, the suffering petitioner in Psalms 3 to 7, the Son of Man in Psalm 8, all of them are Jesus Christ. All these Psalms of David, they are looking to Christ. He's the fulfilment. Number two, how we pray the Psalms in Christ is that we recognise that Jesus is fully human. Have you already done a module on Christology? On the Incarnation? Okay, who is Jesus? Son of God. Okay, Son of God is who? So who is God? God is Trinity. He is one God who has eternally existed in three persons who are distinct but inseparable and each person is fully God. They don't together make up God. They are fully God. They are one and yet they are distinct and inseparable. The one person, the son of God, 2,000 years ago, what did he do? Came to earth and came to earth as God, as spirit, so as invisible, as a human being. So God the Son, who has forever had a divine nature, what did he take on himself? A human nature. So one person of the Trinity who used to have one nature didn't take anything away from himself, but added another nature to himself, a human nature. So now God the Son, one person of the Trinity has two natures. Again, distinct, so you don't merge and intermingle and become a mush of human God. Distinct, but never separate. Now, forever and ever and ever into eternity, God the Son always has a divine nature and a full human nature. Not just a human body, but a human body and a human soul. That's who God the Son is for eternity now. God the Son has brought humanity into him, in his person. Okay? So God the Son is now forever human, as well as divine. And therefore, God the Son experiences what it's like to be human. God the Son experienced the full range of human emotions. God, who is incapable of dying or suffering... Assumed a human nature so he knows exactly what it's like to suffer, to be humiliated, to to get the common cold, to be whipped and flogged, to have a crown of thorns thrust on his head, and to die the most grisly death. God the Son knows what it's like to come under the wrath, the holy wrath of God, not just like we experience here and now, but in its eternal outpouring on every single person in this room who is in Christ by faith, he experienced, he experienced things at a far higher degree than we will ever experience. And he did it in his full humanity. He, he wasn't a superman. He didn't have a kind of supernatural human nature. He had a fully human nature, joined to his fully divine nature, distinct but inseparable. Which means that when, when we find Jesus walking the earth, when we find Jesus being taught by his parents, when we see Jesus in the synagogue and in the temple and, and listening to the rabbis, how's he praying? What does he use to pray? The Psalms. Just like us. And he experiences the Psalms in his prayer life to his father 
as a fully human being, just like us. Just like us. It's incredible. Which is why in Hebrews 5, we read that he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. So we must pray the Psalms in Christ, because David, who so often the subject of Psalms, is a type of Christ, because Christ himself is fully human, and he prayed the Psalms. And thirdly, because we find a Psalm spoken by Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. So the last thing while we're on Psalms, um, again, back into tables. Could you guys, the first two tables, look at Psalm 22, verse 1, and how it's fulfilled in Matthew 27? Um, Back tables look at Psalm 35, 9 and John 15. Um, then two tables at the back look at Psalm 78. Um, this table, the middle table, look at Psalm 16. Uh, and then these two tables look at Psalm 69, please. Okay, are we ready? Yeah? Let's go with um, Psalm 22, verse 1. How's that used? By Jesus at his crucifixion. It's to fulfill prophecy, that's right. So Psalm 22 is a psalm of who? Of David, the anointed king. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course he was never really forsaken. He felt that. But he was pointing to one who is truly forsaken at the cross. The one who's forever been in relationship with God. And yet by God was forsaken for us in our place. Which means that we will never be forsaken. That's the crucial thing. Saul was forsaken. But we will never be forsaken because Jesus, the one to whom David pointed, has come and been forsaken for us. Great. What about Psalm 35? Verse 19. Well spotted. (laughs) Not verse 9. 35, 19. Uh, Used by Jesus in John 15. What's he saying? Yeah. I can't do it, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, there's quite a lot of symbolism with what um, people do with their eyes, so uh, giving people the evil eye and malicious wink, so it's, it's kind of mixed in with what people believe you could do by looking at them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. So what we see, what, what we see throughout the whole of the Old Testament is that the Spirit comes upon particular people, like the prophets uh, and like the kings. Um, but the Spirit is at work yeah. in the lives of every believer because we cannot come to saving faith without regeneration, without the work of the Spirit. Yeah. But Pentecost was unique. It's the, the fulfilment of the prophecy of Joel 2 in the Holy Spirit being poured out on all people. So that we are all kings and priests and prophets in that sense. And obviously people disagree with exactly what that means and looks like. But that's undoubtedly what Acts 2 teaches. So it was he poured out his spirit just for, on specific... On specific people for... Yeah, for specific roles as prophets, priests, and kings, yeah. but was on a work was on in was at work in all believers. Even 
in the Old Testament times, because there's only one way to be saved. It's not like Old Testament saints could, could somehow make themselves trust in God's promises. They, they were dead in their sins. They needed a work of the Spirit there. But what happens at Pentecost is that thing that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament scriptures of the outpouring of the Spirit on all. In that prophet, priest, king, through union with the ultimate prophet, priest, king. Does that make sense? Um, that's all part of a much bigger issue, but yeah. Um, back to Psalm 78. How Psalm 78 used in John 6. Anyone? Great. This is a bit more of a tricky one because it's just a quote, but yeah. Go on. What, what's the profound, profound usage? Well, it was about the, uh, in the crowd asking for the sign. Yes. And, uh, and talk about the, the manner in the wilderness. And actually, when you go back to 78, it talks about um, how God gave them signs, rained down food upon them, and in spite of that, they still didn't believe as well. So. Yeah. Excellent. That's great. Yeah, you didn't need to blame Tim for it. That's awesome. <laughs> Which is Jesus saying, you know, you're always the same. The Israelites received the manna in the wilderness, they grumbled. It's happening there in Psalm 78. It happens when Jesus comes and he is the bread of heaven, and yet still they'll grumble and reject. Yeah. Uh, what about Psalm 16? Psalm 16 is weird, isn't it? So this is King David, who knows that every human being dies, saying, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your faithful one see decay. That's not an unclear Bible verse, is it? He's clearly saying, I'm not going to die. I won't decay. And yet, he does die and he does decay. So then, you know, is the Bible wrong? Well, no, what, what Peter does in Acts 2 is effectively he takes another part of the Bible to rightly interpret Psalm 16. So, so Peter is saying, I am a witness to the resurrected Christ. At that moment, that becomes part of Holy Scripture. Acts 2 gets put down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in Scripture. And Acts 2 now gives us the authoritative interpretation of Psalm 16. That always David was speaking clear words about not seeing decay, but he was speaking about one other than himself, one to whom he pointed, the one of which he was a type who would never decay, who would never see death that held him. Do you see? 
It's that pattern of fulfilment. Everything we see of David is fulfilled in Christ. Finally, um, Psalm 69. Fairly straightforward. The psalm is David complaining about the mistreatment he receives and from those who should. And his hunger is fed with gall, and his thirst is fed with is sated with vinegar. And then the John reference is Jesus on the cross. Cross. And in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, "I thirst." And nearby there was a vessel of vinegar, which they dipped the sponge in and fed to him. And it's the what David's the mistreatment David complains of, Jesus accepts as his own hmm. to fulfil David's own complaint. And we'll make the interesting point of the people feeding Jesus the vinegar weren't Jews. They would have no context for what they were doing. Yep. They were just rubbing it in because they had the power to do so yeah. and in that spiteful action yeah yeah and it's, and it's explicit it's in case anybody would think oh that's coincidence there's one verse 2,000 years ago that mentions vinegar yeah and now it's mentioned again but that's just coincidence yeah John writes in order that it would be fulfilled it's, it's deliberate yeah 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 and it's just so visual as well, isn't it? So you've got David thirsting and being punished and, and just being in desperation. And Jesus himself thirsts on the cross that all of us who thirst might never thirst again in fulfilment of that picture of David. It's just, it's beautiful. And that's praying the Psalms in Christ. It's recognising our thirst, but recognise our thirst is sated in Christ, thirsting for us. So before we go to coffee, uh, let's, uh, four of us, let's pray. You can pick any one of the Psalms you've read and pray it. Okay, let's do that.